I'm Zandi Fayez and you're listening to the full interview edition of the Road to Open Science podcast. This time, a fascinating interview with someone who has been involved in open science for more than 20 years. His name is Egon Willighagen, a chemist and researcher at Maastricht University. His interest in open science started when he was a student, but he couldn't find the resources he needed for his research project, so he decided to do something about it. Uh, my name is Egon Willegagen. I'm a researcher at uh, Maastricht University. Uh, I've been uh, interested in open science for a long time. Uh, started as a hobby, things I just wanted to know about. Open science has for me been uh, a nice way to interact with people, to collaborate with people. Um, as a researcher in Maastricht, uh, we study a number of uh, different projects. I'm a chemist in origin, so I'm applying chemistry, uh, my knowledge about chemical information and how to handle that to biological problems. And these problems can be uh, computational, predictive, toxicology, things around drug discovery, protein, drug interactions, uh, and uh, metabolomics data analysis and combining that with biological pathway databases. So open science is if I understood correctly, sort of an integral part of the way you do research. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. As a student, when I started my, uh, my, 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 my studies, I quickly ran into the problem that I did not have access to, to information. Questions I had, I was unable to answer, or I could only answer um, yeah, after needless effort. And I decided that that was not the way I wanted to work. And this was reinforced by uh, later collaborations via the internet, where I was able to contribute to projects uh, because of open science approaches. Uh, and that was uh, very rewarding. So when was that? That was in the second half of the 90s. Uh, we, we, we didn't really have a lot of licensing uh, things and copyright discussions right now but I was making a website about organic chemistry and um, I came into contact with someone uh, Christoph Steinbeck who was creating uh, software to depict and edit chemical structures and uh, Peter Marrust in Cambridge who was uh, working on a representation format, a file format for chemical structures. And I realized that I could use that for the website that uh, I was creating. But the combination of the two didn't exist. Uh, but because both were open, I was able to take parts of both of it, combine that and uh, create something new uh, and contribute this back to that, uh, uh, to that project. So that's almost 20 years ago or more? Um, yes, I think so. I think I think I uh, had contact with them in '97 or '98, so that's 20 years ago. Yes. Uh, and but the discussion of open science and the things we are following now has become more common, mainstream, especially at the universities and in the major research organizations. More in the recent years, and we are also seeing more and more new developments. Do you see a difference between what at this moment we call open science? and the open access that 20 years ago you were using for your projects? Uh, that's not an easy question. There, there, there are differences. It's harder for me to decide how important those differences are. Uh, one obvious thing is just skill, and with skills come formalities. Another thing, 20 years ago, the term open science did not exist yet. Uh, we had open source licenses. There were no open licenses for documentation. So um, uh, we, we, we had a, a documentation f uh, a license from, uh, from the GNU uh, people. 
um, which were not really suitable for uh, yeah for what we would consider open access right now. Uh, so the Creative Commons licenses have simplified things, have standardized things uh, further. I would say open science right now is more mature than it was back then. But since more people are involved, the scale is higher, we also see a lot more well, resistance, if you like. Uh, people that try to bend terminology, uh, remove underlying important rights of open science. So, which is particularly clear in the discussion around open access. In open access, has, that, that term has become so, so broad, so sometimes meaningless, whereas open science to me points to the ability to use something to reuse that modify it uh, and redistribute the changes i made uh, as part of the whole if i look at some of the things that people call open science this is definitely not always the case so uh let's dissect this a bit so you're telling me that open science needs a certain principles or open access needs certain minimal pr principles to make it useful the way you were using it in the past 20 years. So can you give some examples or a list of these principles? Let's start with open access publications and then maybe also if you have such a list for open data that you mentioned for reusability. Is there a list of such criteria that you see in your view is necessary to call something really open? Yeah, I think the list uh, it actually consists of only three things. Uh, I, I I haven't thought of further needs, and these three things are the same for for open data, for open access, for uh, open source, uh, and they're they're basically just simply the rights that that allow you to continue building on top of previous science. So what you need for that is, uh, the first of thing, uh, first thing is you need to be able to access it. You need to be able to use it, the right to use it. The second right is that you need to be able to modify it, correct things, for example. And the third one is that you can actually reshare uh, what you started with, uh, the new improved thing, if you like. Now, these things, uh, I think, apply for for, for the various uh, corners of open science. If I think about open access, it may so not sound so obvious, but think of the following situation. We start with a version that we submit to a journal. Uh, sometimes we push this to a preprint server. Right now we get it reviewed, we make modifications. So far we are mostly thinking of the the published version, the as soon as publishable version, or even the final final version, the version of record, I think is the term they use for it, as the final thing of that uh, of that article. But we know we find problems in there, things that are not entirely clear. Uh, so the ability to reuse it, copy text, reshare it for open uh, for, for for open access for articles for literature is essential. Uh, right now, the amount of effort I need to put in to uh, just share uh, articles with collaborators and, uh, and, and, and students is needlessly hard. In case of students, we have dedicated national laws for that. That should not be needed. Uh, sharing an article with people I collaborate with internationally is uh, is even harder, though I do not have heard uh, publishers complain about that if I reshare 
Paywalled uh, literature with collaborators abroad. For open data, we see the same thing. Uh, the, a particular data set, a published data set, for example, is not the end product. You uh, will want to combine that, combine data sets, extend data sets, correct errors in there, uh, and be able to reshare it to actually uh, sort of allowing others to build on your results again. So this reuse, modify and redistribution rights is something I see also with data and also with open access. And with open source, we, we, we have known this for much longer already. Uh, these concepts there have been established uh, much earlier. But something, for example, for the case of data comes is the credit and the ownership. So who do you think owns the data? Well, with a lot of these copyright-related things, things are not always very simple. So in case of data, there is this recurring debate about uh, are facts, uh, facts copyrightable? And in several jurisdictions, they are not at all. In Europe, it's even a bit more complicated because you can have collections of, uh, of, of data. And at some point, you reach a point where the collection is copyrightable. So who owns the data is a hard question, but maybe also not the most interesting one. It's the data itself that is interesting and someone collected that and you can acknowledge this, uh, this person and you can give this person uh, a credit for that. Now, I do see people uh, asking uh, and, and also me personally asking about that. If something is open, I won't get credited, uh, which is to me a, a weird argument because acknowledging and citing whom you extend is a core value of science. You acknowledge where you got data from. So for me, the ownership and the co potential copyright is not that important. Uh, it's good practice to cite where you got data from uh, so that, uh, yeah, that other people can, 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 can trace it back, acknowledge people. If you know who owns the data, then you can tell those people under these rights, you can own the data or you can not claim to own the data, right? So the question of who owns the data is not essential to me. Increasingly, people are waiving this uh, with a, a CC0 uh, license slash waiver, for example. I see these things uh, as, as, as a choice from whom made that. If I use uh, CC0 data myself, I would still uh, cite the people uh, or the, yeah, the people that created it the place where I got it from. And I think I think something like, a, a, actually like most, most licenses, they're a, a countermeasure for uh, the current international laws that we have and should be seen differently from the good practices that we have in science. But do we have them? Is it a common universal practice in science that all communities follow or this has to be set up? Because it's very different from community to community how people deal with data sets, how people deal with authorship. We see differences there for data and I do not see why, I don't understand why, because I, I'm not aware of scientific fields, scientific domains where at an article level, uh, you would be allowed to not cite work that you extended on. So why would that be different for data? And if that is data, uh, different for data, that is Probably because that field hasn't realized that knowledge actually can just have different shapes, whether it is an article or whether it is a data set, whether it's software or an ontology or whatever. It's knowledge. 
and it should not matter in what form that knowledge is uh, is acquired. You should cite your source. This comes to the community set rules or principles, which are actually not written in stone at all. It's they are sometimes even not written on paper. They are unspoken rules, which sort of given from generation to generation. So, do you think we need governance for this commonly shared data and also the rules of sharing? I think like with most aspects of science, uh, it tends to be self-correcting. And the awareness that data and articles are the same and should be rewarded the same in, in, in that respect as well and should be governed in the same way, that is starting to get more ground. I think it, it should be governed, but not differently from, from other ways of how we uh, uh, deal with good practices in science. And who should govern such schemes? Is it a community that comes together and sets a governance scheme, or should there be the publishers, or should there be the grant organizations, or the people who ordered this type of research? How do you think uh, these governance structures take shape? Because I know that you are active in many activities, collective activities to gather data and to structure them. And I want to ask and know about your experience of the good and the bad sides of doing it collectively. Here too, I think the community is self-organizing. So uh, efforts are revolving around projects, around initiatives. Universities have set themselves uh, good practices, uh, written documents for that. Uh, at national levels, we see uh, good practices uh, being written down and defined on how to be a good scientist. Other than that, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if we need to formalize this too strongly, if it all needs to be, uh, be law. Uh, on the other hand, um, uh, I, th I thought it was going to be a hard question, but at least one thing is clear, it should not be publishers. It should be researchers themselves. Our communication platform should not decide how researchers should work together. The platform is just a platform, it's just a means. It's, uh, it, it, it cannot be what decides what researchers do. That should uh, researchers do themselves uh, in collaboration with, with, with others, but not the publishers, I think. So can you give me... An example among all these projects you do one example of a project which has been done collaboratively and governed collaboratively and has been a success so far success is a bit of a, a hard definition i think but i think the projects that turned out doing quite well uh, include for example the chemistry development kit it's used a lot it's also cited a lot we've done there something that uh, made a change to the field can you give a short history of chemistry development kit it's a, a cheminformatics library it was uh, it, it uh, resulted from three software projects in in the area of chemistry we try to combine there the, the pieces of software on an on a common library so the chemistry development kit started out as as that common library got extended over time and uh, by now so we started that in 2000, so 18 years later, we have contributors of more than 100 people, which for cheminformatics is quite a lot because that field is so specialistic, it's not actually so large, at least not at the uh, method development side and the using site uh, much more. And there, perhaps because that community is not so large, we established our own 
way of working. It's nothing like Wikipedia, where you have a couple of hundred thousand of people that collaborated. Um, but in both cases, some things are the same. So the Chemistry Development Kit has a license. Changing that is uh, is nearly impossible now. We would have to track down 100 people. That's much simpler than Wikipedia had to do when they changed their license to uh, from uh, the, uh, the GNU FDL to uh, the Creative Commons license. We set up some uh, governance on how we developed code, coding standards. We introduced peer review at some point, the need for uh, for, for testing of software, uh, repeated testing to, to catch uh, regressions uh, over time. And, uh, and that seems to have worked well. It, it helped people to, yeah, particularly the reviewing, uh, I think, it required people to think twice uh, about yeah, the, what they what they wrote and whether that was correct and so it's So is it all voluntarily or is it an association that supports this financially and uh, uh, when it needs some to get resources, do you get it from people or do you get it from institutes? It's it's sort of a bit of both. There is no foundation or association or, or, or company behind the chemistry development kit. At the same time, we're getting contributions from all sorts of sites. And uh, like a lot of scientific software, the main contribution comes from paid researchers at academic institutes or industrial institutes for, for, for that matter. So the work effectively is being paid for, but the funding there is not always specifically for the product, uh, which I think is quite a lot the case for the chemistry development kit. Now, personally, actually, I did a lot of work on the chemistry development kit uh, next to my PhD research uh, and not as part of my PhD research. There were some occasions where that was the case, but the overlap was just minimal. Uh, but we have had contributions from industries, uh, for example, and a lot of research was actually done from projects running at universities or PhD studies where the collaborative need was actually uh, the trigger that caused this development, this collaborative development particularly. Uh, multiple people having the same needs and trying to find a solution for that. So I'm not fully aware of your structure of governance or structure of control, uh, maintenance of this uh, development kit. But there are other open source packages, and Python is one example of them. There are certain packages of Python, which although they have millions of users, the core development team is somehow 10, sometimes even 100, sometimes even less depends on the package. And one would argue that, you know, if these 10 people suddenly, you know, decide to do something else, or if the project dies, what's going to happen? How do you address this concern in scientific projects of this scale that you're mentioning? If it is open source or open science, depending on source code or data, uh, and it is useful, then someone else can take it over. And we have seen this for uh, for, for, for projects where, where uh, the lead developer, sometimes one or two people, uh, the lead developers actually uh, step down and someone else takes over. And open licenses with those implementing those three uh, three three uh, core values core rights uh, actually make that possible 
But it's not the only uh, only thing, of course. And um, uh, just putting an open license on to, on top of something doesn't make it sustainable. Doesn't make it maintainable. You'll actually have to adhere to coding standards, uh, documentation standards, testing, testing allowing you to to to, to, to indicate what expected values are, or computer computed values, or uh, return values of functions allowing the next person to understand what the code is doing and understand enough of it so that uh, that person can maintain it. Are, are you not worried or in any of these projects have been the cases of having free riders? Because that's a common thing that comes in, say, common projects, the, the open projects, that people make benefit of it, even commercialize it without giving back to the community because probably giving back to the community is the way that you can sustain such projects for long enough time, right? As, as a researcher, I would love it actually. The more people that use it, the more your work actually has impact on society. So every every researcher should be delighted if people uh, piggyback on, uh, on on your results or leech on it on whatever you would like to call it, or, or data parasite if you like. As a researcher, I think anyone reusing your work is the highest compliment that you can get. For the chemistry development kit, we actually very deliberately took a license, the LGPL license that allows uh, embedding in commercial proprietary products, because we realized that the foundations of, of cheminformatics is something that we all benefit from. And uh, around that, uh, you might have graphical user interfaces, and uh, but the foundations, if we can uh, agree on collaboratively working on those foundations, uh, and the LGPL allows exactly that. If people make changes to the core library, they're expected to make that openly available. If they make interfaces around the tools around that, they do not necessarily have to. It's, again, by the license that you protect it so that even if it is, you know, Profit is made, the profit does not cut from the original project that was started and does not stop the project from developing itself further. And this is also, I think, a lesson we had from the open access software at the beginning. I mean, this is perhaps a long story, but not so long ago, the, the head of Microsoft was saying that, you know, open source software is like cancer because it touches every piece of software and then yeah, becomes... There's this, this software with a copy, le uh, copy lefting clause that requires uh, things that use it also to be to be open source. And you can call that cancer. You can also just uh, call that growth. And we, we know that cancer and growth actually arc very closely together. Uh, I, I don't see that as a problem. And uh, that is partly because uh, much of the open science I do, I'm already being paid for. And that's a quite luxury situation. And I, I, I know that. Uh, I have uh, friends that uh, do uh, consultancy. And then the software they develop, the, the tools that they develop, is, uh, is their uh, way of making a living. And then I understand it's really hard to yeah, just give that away freely. And it's, I also think it should not be black and white necessarily. So for me, in five years, uh, the code of five years ago may not have value anymore of, or, or already uh, way beyond profit, profitable phase. And you might decide, okay, uh, it was useful at the time, but now I can make it open source. That, that would be marvelous. Um, so so I, I think there is a lot of, lot of room there for, 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 for mixed models. 
Uh, on the other hand, I'm, I'm paid for my work anyway, whether I make it open source or if I keep it closed source, I'm paid anyway. I'm, I, I now have a fixed position at the university. So I have absolutely no excuse, I think, to not make it open source. But don't you also have a responsibility because your job is financed by public money to keep the fruits of your production, the scientific production in the public domain so that the public should not have paid twice like for example this is like open access publishing but you can also say in drug discovery if i you know if i discover a drug and then sell it for no uh proper price to mm -hmm. uh, pharmaceutical but the pharmaceutical puts a very high price tag on it i basically have taken something from the public domain and then made it private yeah well I've, i tell you the idea that anyone should be able to profit from the the, the research that we do uh to applies some things do need maintenance. Uh, software definitely needs need maintenance. Um, so I, I also understand there that selling a product to, to fund for uh, a service, like a service contract, that can be needed. And, uh, but that also got me to, the, to, yeah, to, to, to my personal opinion that both things are not necessarily each other's opposite. They can be hard to combine, but those core values of open science, those three rights and the question of money, they're separate things to me. How come, as you just said, maintenance needs money? It practically means that we have to think carefully on how we're going to fund for that. And for some reasons, it's a careful design. Uh, maintenance becomes a lot easier if we design things well so that they're easy to maintain. For software, that means good documentation, testing, for example. For literature, well, we don't do maintenance at all. We, we discussed that a, a second ago where we said, well, the, the version of record, uh, the final print, we, we leave it. We don't maintain it at all. We don't care anymore. And in case of data, we're not really doing it either yet. So, so what maintenance are we talking about uh, then? So maybe, maybe I should rephrase it. So there are a number of collaborations uh, that need maintenance. But also there are data sets that when they are small, they are not so valuable, but they only become valuable when they maintain for a couple of years or maybe a decade and become large enough data sets that now you use a network effect and just the, the critical mass to make it something which you could not do individually. I think I think we've seen that in practice, a lot of data and knowledge bases they need a certain critical mass uh, after which they become irreplaceable. At that point, also the cost tends to go up. And there we see with open science one nasty effect of human behavior: we don't like to pay for something that we might get for free, despite how valuable it is. And most open science things we actually share for free. Uh, and in that way, uh, creating a, a human bias uh, towards that. It doesn't inhibit us, it, us from selling services around it. Uh, we don't typically do it and we try to fund it in different ways. But paying access to data that you can then freely use and reuse and modify and redistribute yourself is possible but unfortunately we don't really have a lot of examples of that i wanted to ask you exactly can you give us one example of um, a data set or 
project which is data intensive or program intensive that has become big, state free and was maintained properly. You mentioned the chemistry development kit. I don't know how mature you see that project, but can you give us more examples of things that have already passed the points that they will never die and be, they are already mature? Mature yet, never die, no. Uh, we even see for the big irreplaceable databases in um, in the life sciences, like uh, the PDB structure database, uh, a database like Uniprot with protein sequences, uh, or uh, the nucleotide databases. Um, they're really hard to replace. Now, for most of these, we still have two, three copies of them, independent. Uh, uh, so for, for nucleotides, we have Ensemble and uh, NCBI gene uh, on both sides of uh, uh, of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, some databases have a resource in uh, in Asia and Japan, for example. I think they practically will not go away because as soon as it really turns out that these resources uh, will go away, someone will find the money and someone will take it over, over this project because uh, these resources tend to be open data that is possible. It hasn't come that far yet, uh, but I'm told that for some of these resources, they've been very close to closing down, actually to being forced close to closing down. Um, but the sustainability to me is, I think, in, in, in the fact that all this data is openly available. And we saw this with uh, one database, for example, the uh, the CAC uh, database for biological pathways, uh, a very interesting phenomenon. At some point, a couple of years ago, uh, they decided that the academic funding mechanism, doing academic research in that way, building and maintaining the resource, was uh, going to end. They were not get, getting enough uh, research funding for that anymore, and they had to find an alternative route, and they decided to go to a proprietary database format. And right now, companies have to pay for access, and academics, uh, I think, at least to some of some of the ways of access, get free access. But they also announced uh, when this change was going to happen. And uh, if, if you follow the social media, you realize that everyone was uh, downloading everything from the FTP side just to have uh, future access. Uh, this is not how it should be, I think. But they're still around. So they managed to, to change the way they funded that uh, really important resource. And at some point, they, uh, it might actually go another way around again. They uh, might actually open up at some point again. It's still there. Uh, and and, and that, is, that, is, that is the thing here. If something is really valuable, that value is recognized. And, and then the means to uh, keep it alive uh, will be found. That's uh, my experience or my observation. And this is one of probably my last questions. This topic we had... Uh, in our previous episodes about the science and the career in science being a star system that you need to shine to grow and to be recognized. And one thing that big projects that have a lot of contributors has is that it's relatively difficult to point at a certain individual and say, you know, this is the star and this is the lead. Uh, and this discourages some people to participate in these projects. First of all, have you had this experience and this feeling? And 
do you see that as a downside of doing common projects or you think there's just another type of people that don't care about the system and then see the value in the uh, shared endeavor anyways and somehow stick to the system? Uh, I, I think I recognize this this effect. And in my experience, indeed, you need to make a serious effort in getting people involved. In uh, in the open source projects uh, that we did, Chemistry Development Kit particularly, you actually uh, get very little insight in all the people that are using it. And sometimes just only after a publication gets out, you see who uses it. And sometimes that might include actually modifications that they made. They have not dared to submit that yet. They made a change and for whatever reason, they they were uh, not submitting that to the project and, uh, and, and contribute back. I recognize that a lot and uh, in uh, open source projects and also in other projects uh, you see the uh, the importance and the use of tracks to get people started, to get people to contribute small bits, making small steps and we all started in these projects, also the, the high level PIs in those projects if you like, uh, the experienced contributors, they also started small but the larger the more successful a project becomes, the less clear that seems to be. Um, and examples of that is uh, that in the chemistry development kit, we had a concept called junior jobs, uh, small tasks that people could uh, uh, could clearly see when they were done uh, and how they contributed and how that helped the project. And in this way, they would build up the skills, build up the familiarity uh, with uh, the coding standards, with the people involved and how their patches were, were accepted. Uh, a similar thing we see with uh, the Wiki Pathways database. That's a, that's a biological pathway database we develop in Maastricht. And uh, it, it's, it's a crowdsourced community approach there. And uh, our collaborators in San Francisco, the group of Alex Pico, uh, they developed an academy, uh, small steps of this is how you do this. And people can start doing this and doing uh, a small task by small task. And in this way, uh, building up uh, enough knowledge uh, about the project and how the project works. Uh, not just technically, but also uh, in, 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 in terms of collaboration, enough skills that they, uh, they become familiar enough with everything that they uh, dare to make significant contributions. And sometimes this can be really scary. Even I have that as a well, quite experienced open scientist, always thinking, is this going to upset someone? So what can upset others? So what do you mean? If you make changes, you always make changes and uh, you're correcting things in, in your view. But the way it was might actually be just like the person who created it, how, how he or she wanted it to be. Uh, if you change something, it feels a lot like giving feedback saying, well, you're wrong. And saying wrong to someone else, uh, uh, not just for open science projects, but in person as well, saying that someone else is wrong is difficult. But back to the question was about getting uh, newcomers or people to motivating people to join such projects. You said you need to train them. Probably they are students. I don't know. Maybe you can list what is the students' motivation and do they receive the feedback from the motivation they put in and. If there is a system that only rewards the stars and only one in hundred gets 
you know, a cookie at the end, uh, would that sustain itself or we need to also change it? I think a reward system for a lot of open science projects exists by just being an open science project. Uh, a lot of researchers do research because they want to do research. They have an intrinsic motivation uh, or an intrinsic need. Uh, one of the nice things about open science is anything open science can be reused, uh, can be extended on, and it doesn't go away, or rarely. Uh, it can go away. Uh, we, we see things disappear, open and not open. Um, but it's it's there, you can extend it on, and uh, by yeah, being able to just extend on it, it very often uh, allows you to do things much more quickly. So there are uh, uh, for for things that are valuable, uh, always a lot of people that actually uh, see that open science thing as something they need, so they have their intrinsic motivation. Um, this is, I think, what keeps open science projects going, uh, motivating them by means of extrinsic motivation works uh, less well, I think. Also because very often then uh, money gets involved and people are just enormously expensive. We have things like uh, the uh, uh, the Amazon Mechanical Turk. Um, I, I I looked at at some point at that, and it's it's not it would not be rewarding for me. I would not earn enough per hour uh, uh, to 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 make a living. I would lose on everything every minute I would spend on it. So a lot of lot of things uh, rewarding things that you could do. Are not are not paying off i think uh, uh, and on the other hand i see most open science projects thrive uh, by the intrinsic motivations that the people have that do contribute uh, but i can imagine if the higher you go in the governance and organization and the longer you need to maintain it becomes more work intensive for the for example project leaders or the people who want to found a new open science uh, database or open project how should these people be, if not rewarded, get motivation to, to start such big new efforts? That's, that's a good and important question. So, so one project we, we had, an, an, an uh, Inanimap project, was an uh, FP7 funded project uh, funded by the European Commission. Uh, and we were to, we were to develop a uh, common language and ontology and database solutions uh, to share uh, nano safety data. This Inanimapper uh, project uh, did not have that much uh, much funding. Uh, uh, still, I think it was four million. Uh, uh, so, so, so quite a bit of bit of work spread over three years, uh, but also including outreach and uh, and documentation. Um, and we we managed to do. We we proposed a fully open science approach there. We managed to do this in 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 three years, partly because we extended on an existing open uh, open source and an open science, and we also ensured the uh, the sustainability of this uh, by actually having open licenses. So this allowed, for example, other organizations to uh, to to extend on this software, uh, sometimes supported by one of the former Inanimapper uh, uh, partners, sometimes independently and just getting uh, uh, getting uh, some uh, consultancy uh, feedback from one of the partners. And in, in some of these cases, it actually uh, is indeed the, the governance level or the, or the, the, the project PIs uh, yeah, making a decision here. And what we managed to do in Inanimapper is to actually uh, show the value of the tools. 
So what do you actually get if you use this? And we focused on the problems the, uh, the open science was solving more than on the fact that it was open science. In fact, in the first, uh, first, first year or two, we hardly used the word open at all because five years ago, open was uh, not as accepted as it is by now. There is now critical mass of people that understand what open science actually is about. Five years ago, that was quite differently. And people then still had the feeling that open science was something that forced them to do something rather than giving them options. And that is what open science should be about. It's, a, uh, it's about giving options. And uh, for maybe the last thing I, I can ask from you, as a university, if a university wants to change strategies or change policies in a way that promotes open science practices, what would be your first advice? What should change or what should be done? My most important message there uh, typically tends to be the following, uh, following realization that I rather see 100% of people contribute 10% to open science than 10% of the people contributing 100% of science. And this is essential. You can do open science and it is not black and white. You can contribute to, to open science in very many ways. And you don't have to give away your crown jewels, your, your core API. Uh, you can very well protect your, your own business and still contribute to open science. Uh, sometimes you have to search a bit for it, but most people have things that do no longer have value to them uh, or has some value to them, but combined with, by, by contributing it to open science, combined with other things actually get exponentially more value to them and in uh, allowing them to, yeah, to look into new profitable uh, areas. So my main message there is uh, is get people to realize that this, this thing that open science is not about you must do this or you must do that, but that open science is, is about collaboration uh, for the mutual benefit. More like an option than an obligation. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Egon. It was very nice talking to you. You've been listening to the Road to Open Science Full Interview podcast. My guest was Egon Willigagen. Thanks go to him for joining the podcast. You can hear a shorter version of this interview in the Road to Open Science podcast episode number four, The Untapped Potential. That podcast also featured Rosanne Hersberger. The Road to Open Science podcast is made possible by the Utrecht Young Academy and with support of the Utrecht University Library. Please subscribe to our feed and share it with your friends so that they can also listen to this podcast. We want to have as wide a discussion as possible on open science. And we'd love to know what you think about the podcast. You can get in touch via Twitter with the handle at sign R2OS podcast with a numeric 2. Research for the podcast is from Marisa Moll and editing by Andy Clark. From me, San Lifaez, thanks for listening. <laughs>